The motto of Liberia reads, quote, The love of liberty brought us here. End quote. But is that really true? Monrovia was first settled in 1822 by freed slaves from the United States. They named the settlement Monrovia after the fifth president of the United States and declared it a republic in 1847, naming it Liberia. Liberia was the first independent republic in Africa, but its settlers made it into a U.S. knockoff. Liberia's government was based on the American system with a House of Representatives and a Senate. The currency was also from the U.S., and its flag also looked like that of the U.S., but with a single star instead of many. Now, that motto, well, it wasn't really true, because freedom and liberty, as the settlers had proclaimed, was restricted to the settlers and the settlers only. These were Africans who had been enslaved, and they went back to their motherland and treated those that were there as something less than. I mean, why don't people learn from their experiences? How can you be treated as less than and then treat others as less than? That's like being a Jewish member of the KKK. And no, I'm not talking about Jared Kushner. Those who already lived on the land were regarded as something less than by the American Liberians and their descendants. Over the ensuing century, they received few benefits from the new state of Liberia, although I should add that Liberia, as it was then, did not expand into its current borders until the end of the 19th century. Indigenous people were also not allowed to vote until after the Second World War. How twisted is that? These were the same issues that blacks were facing all over the planet. And now you've got black people perpetrating them on their own countrymen and women? That is sickening. These settlers were like a colonial government in every way, and it wasn't until the 1960s that the colonial style of government was scrapped. Financially, things were worse. The government obtained its first loan from a London bank in 1870, and after that loan, it just kept on borrowing. By the end of 2001, Liberia's external debt stood at a whopping $2.6 billion, with over 80% of that debt coming from the World Bank, the IMF, the African Development Bank, and private moneylenders. 90% of that debt was in arrears, and the government couldn't afford even the most basic payments. In an attempt to raise funds in 1926, President Charles King made an arrangement with the Firestone Rubber and Tire Company. And by made an arrangement, I mean that Firestone exploited Liberia. The deal went like this. Firestone obtained a 99-year lease on a million acres and turned those acres into the world's largest rubber plantation and causing most people to start referring to Liberia by the nickname the Firestone Republic. Much of the labor within the plantation was in the form of indentured servitude, and it was so brutal that the army was required to ensure its continuation and at one time causing the League of Nations, which was the UN's more corrupt predecessor, to question whether Liberia was a truly independent nation. So you had it here first. Before you buy Firestone tires, please remember that they technically used to have slaves working on the rubber that was used to make those tires. You know, these guys need to be cancelled. 
Even today, the rubber industry is massively exploitative and the podcasting industry is a close second. As I mentioned last week, Liberia's trafficking in diamonds stolen from Sierra Leone became a concern to the pre-independence colonial government in Freetown, especially after a diamond rush in the 1950s started a massive smuggling campaign of Sierra Leone's diamonds. In fact, in the 1950s, it was estimated that 20% of all diamonds reaching the world market were smuggled from Sierra Leone through Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. That means, in the 1950s, more than half of the world's diamonds were blood diamonds. So please, take grandma's ring off your finger and sell it. Then donate the money to a charity of your choice, not to politicians. Liberia has diamonds, but they are of relatively low quality compared to those from countries like Sierra Leone and Angola. In 1987, before they discovered that they'd make more money selling other people's diamonds, they exported an all-time high of 295,000 carats at an average of just $37 a carat. In comparison, Angola's diamonds are valued at an average of $300 a carat and some diamonds go as high as $600 a carat. After seeing the low value of Liberian diamonds, prospectors and exporters alike all but gave up on future investments in the diamond industry. What is created was a staging ground. A staging ground in which fictional mines were used to smuggle diamonds from other countries, especially Sierra Leone. The true Whig party, yes, that's a real party, was established in 1869 and ruled Liberia for 111 years without interruption. But when the interruption finally came, it came in the form of a massacre. The party's most prominent leader was a lawyer, William Tubman, who served as president from 1944 until he died in 1971. It wouldn't be wrong to call William Tubman the most corrupt person in Liberia. He was the kind of person that people like, like Charles Taylor looked up to. While he was president, he encouraged cronyism and patronage. He also started an open-door economic policy which welcomed any and all foreign investors in Liberia. That sounds like a good thing until you realize that he was receiving kickbacks from any foreign company that cared to invest in a tiny West African country, especially when a country like Nigeria was right next door. That became quite obvious when, in the 1930s, after various uprisings in what the American Liberians called the quote-unquote hinterlands came to an end. Liberia was revealed to be a seriously underdeveloped country with education and health services beyond Monrovia, the capital, provided by missionaries and aid workers. Keep in mind that this was the first independent country in Africa. Tubman's successor, William Tolbert, attempted reform, but, needless to say, the reforms didn't work out and just ended up pissing off opposition groups and students who were inspired by independence movements across Africa and were tired of being led by an elite class. As racist historian Stephen Ellis put it, quote, Liberia could no longer be convincingly described 
as the beacon of hope to black people the world over. The only independent African Republic. But it was looking more like a corrupt and ramshackle neo-colony managed on behalf of the US government and the Firestone Rubber Company. End quote. The reason I called him racist was because I had to remove an N-word from this quote. This was the 1970s and this guy is using N-words. Who does that? Even US Republicans don't use racial slurs, most of them anyway. What they do is use racist language in an indirect way like quote-unquote shithole countries or what is now referred to as the Tucker Carlson playbook. In 1979, riots in Monrovia broke out. They were sparked by an increase in the price of rice but they served as an ignition point for the decades of oppression that had taken place since the settlers first arrived in Liberia. The US, angry that William Tolbert was trying to appease the opposition in a way that was left-leaning, distanced itself from the government and started signaling that it wouldn't intervene if, you know, a sudden change was to take place. A year later, the expected happened. 17 soldiers launched a coup on the night of April 12, 1980. During this coup, the soldiers disemboweled President Tolbert in the executive mansion and 10 days later, they executed 13 senior members of his government. They did so in front of crowds of celebrating people on a beach in Monrovia. By the time the quote-unquote beach party was over, Master Sergeant Samuel Doe had emerged as head of state and chairman of the People's Redemption Council. Samuel Doe was exactly what you need in a leader. You know, young, inexperienced, and illiterate. Although Doe and his murderous cronies had spoken about freeing Liberians from tyranny and oppression, they had no game plan. For that reason, they found themselves dependent on the American Liberian elite that had managed the country and its affairs for the previous century. At the start of the Reagan administration, which came with renewed Cold War tensions, the US took an interest in Liberia. The US needed an ally in West Africa where CIA listeners and listening equipment could be located, and where US arms flights on their way to UNITA rebels in Angola could refuel. They also needed a country from which they could watch Muammar Gaddafi as he recruited organizations and countries with which to fight imperialist forces. If you want to listen to Muammar Gaddafi's story, you can now do so in my new show, Agents of Strife, which is available everywhere podcasts are available. In Samuel Doe, the US got all these and more. By 1984, the facade of liberation and development from Samuel Doe's regime had faded and cracked. Enemies and friends alike found themselves on the wrong end of a firing squad, and Doe was no longer interested in hiding the fact that he was a monster. That year, Doe accepted an offer from Gaddafi to visit Libya. Following this offer, the US panicked and sent a high-level US State Department official. What followed was an influx of cash, long-term development assistance, and advice on removing political dissidents from any positions of influence that they may hold. When Trump was busy referring to developing countries as shithole countries, he should have explained what made those shithole countries 
shithole countries to begin with, although I don't think he knows. It's actions like these that destroyed the foundations of developing countries, especially in the previous two centuries. So when I see people in Hong Kong asking for US government intervention, I tell myself that they should be wary of what they wish for. As a State Department official later said, quote, Libya was important. We told Doe, this is the wrong thing to do. With regard to Libya, we bought Doe off. There was a direct link between aid and foreign relations, end quote. Uneducated as Doe was, he was willing to learn. He became an avid student of the behavior of his predecessors and some of his counterparts in other countries. He made himself the center of a web of economic manipulation and corruption, which cemented his control over the Liberian government and also helped grow his personal wealth. The main method he used to grow his personal fortune was the management of the Forest Department of Authority. The Forest Department Authority collected logging fees, which didn't make it to the Ministry of Finance and instead ended up in his pocket. He did business with a lot of very diverse people internationally, from Thai generals involved in the sale of Cambodian timber to companies associated with private armies in Lebanon. He even introduced a Liberian dollar and then used it to manipulate currency exchange rates just so he could make a little more money. If that hasn't convinced you that he was a monster, then how about this? He even skimmed money from imports of food aid. By 1988, Doe's brutality, corruption, and mismanagement had reached a fever pitch. Even his strongest supporters were finding it hard to stomach his actions. Earlier in the year, he had met with the Pope and was even celebrated at the White House by Ronald Reagan, who referred to him as Chairman Mo. But unfortunately for him, the Cold War was winding down and the US no longer had any need for him. Continuing their use and discard policy, the US stood back and watched as forces that would eventually bring Doe down gathered in the horizon. Enter Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor, at the time, was a young Liberian with an economics degree from Bentley College, Massachusetts. To earn money, Taylor had worked for a company called Sweetheart Plastics and as a department store salesman during his years in the US. He had also taken part in anti-Talbot student politics. At 31, in 1979, he was arrested briefly as part of a group that had occupied the Liberian mission to the UN during a visit by President Talbot. After that, he left the US for Liberia. Back in Liberia, Charles Taylor found himself in charge of the General Services Agency, or GSA. He was given this position after Doe's coup. The GSA, charged with allotment of government property, was a valuable learning opportunity, especially for someone as ambitious as Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor, of course, did not miss out on the opportunity to embezzle from the GSA, and because Doe was the only one allowed to steal from his own government, Taylor quickly found himself looking at an arrest warrant. Wily as he was, Taylor absconded to the US, which was followed soon afterwards by an extradition request from the Liberian government. In May 1984, Taylor was incarcerated 
in the Plymouth County House of Correction near Boston. He spent 16 months awaiting extradition to Liberia for embezzlement. The extradition and trial, however, never happened because Taylor escaped and returned to West Africa to begin exploring opportunities for what would soon become a war against Samuel Doe. So, strifers, let's get into a little theory. When Doe was incarcerated at the Plymouth County House of Corrections, he was represented by a former U.S. Attorney General by the name of Ramsey Clark, not Ramsey Bolton, otherwise he would have been fed to the dogs before his trial. Anyway, I know you strifers are wondering, just like I am, how Charles Taylor, a lowly African dude, might have managed to get represented by a former U.S. Attorney General. Well, fasten your seatbelts because things are about to get a lot more interesting. Ramsey Clark later made the following statement about Taylor and his escape. Quote, Doe was very necessary to the United States and they wanted to thin out Doe's opposition in the United States by getting Taylor out. The CIA wanted deniability. Charles escaped from jail, came to Staten Island, then went to JFK airport and flew to Europe direct. Friends got him out. I don't think he escaped. I think he went to people who wanted him on that adventure and the US government couldn't accuse Charles of escaping if they actually helped him escape, end quote. Now, I should point out that this is just a theory and has not been proven conclusively. I scoured the internet and a lot of books looking for a thread that might lead me to some evidence, but I found none. However, if this statement was true, then the US made a big, big mistake. On Christmas Eve of 1989, Charles Taylor's lust for power became much stronger than it had ever been. He took advantage of what the U.S. feared most, Libya's money. In the four years after his escape from Plymouth County House of Corrections, he had drummed up support from the Liberian diaspora and traveled across West Africa looking for support, which he later found in the form of Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi had also supported Blaise Compaore, a military officer, who assassinated Burkina Faso's president, Thomas Sankara, in 1987. Once in power himself, Blaise supported Taylor's newly formed National Patriotic Front of Liberia, or NPFL. He supported it by providing it with a base, end-user certificates for weapons, diplomatic passports, training, men, and money. Ivorian president at the time, whose name I shall not mention because it's just too hard to pronounce, gave Taylor support. The reason he did this was because he had been a godfather to President Talbot's son. President Talbot's son had also died in the coup that brought Samuel Doe to power. His support came in the form of an operating base in Cote d'Ivoire and transshipment facilities from Burkina Faso. Taylor might have won his war against Samuel Doe, if not for an intervention from the Economic Community of West African States Monitoring Group, also known as ECOMOG, which I mentioned last week in Sierra Leone Part 2. ECOMOG arrived in Liberia in August 1990 and quickly set, a, set about securing Doe's hold on power. This, however, didn't last long because Doe was captured by one of Taylor's rivals, Prince Johnson, and tortured in ways that I cannot describe on this podcast 
because people have been complaining that my show is way too graphic. Like, I'm sorry, but there's a skull on this show's cover art. I put the skull there so people couldn't keep endlessly complaining that the show is too graphic. Besides, I don't remember forcing you to listen. It goes without saying that the world out there is a pretty dark place, okay? So do me a favor and stay in your perfect little world and leave me in mine. Please excuse my rant but I find it so triggering when people keep on complaining about obvious things. This show is dark because the world is dark. If the world was all cupcakes, then this show would be cupcakes too. Do you understand that, cupcake? After the death of Samuel Doe, the war continued for seven more years and took the lives of an estimated 80,000 people. The war would tarnish the image of Liberia so much that, in the coming years, it would remain a country in name only. The brutality of the war increased after the death of Samuel Doe and Taylor was forced to take the same lessons on economics as Doe had done before him. While he had not been able to control the capital of Liberia, he was able to take control of much of the country's interior along with the ports of Greenville and Buchanan. Taylor's first successful export was timber, which was sold through a consortium of foreign companies and syndicates of Liberians and Lebanese traders based in Liberia and across the border in Ivory Coast. He also made deals for the sale of rubber and iron ore and then increasingly turned his attention to diamonds. According to an estimate, Taylor was able to trade goods worth about $100 million annually between 1990 and 1992. This is quite small compared to what was to come. Let's put it this way. Had Charles Taylor not been super corrupt and had a war not been raging in Liberia, then the country would have been one of the most prosperous nations on the planet. Taylor's approach to the diamond trade was two-pronged. On one hand, he used his war against Doe to divide the tribes of West Africa. He did this by branding one of the tribes, the Madingos, Doe collaborators. The reason he did this was because he wanted access to diamond smuggling networks that the Madingos controlled. The Madingos were forced to flee once the other tribes turned against them and the smuggling networks fell neatly into Taylor's lap. On the other hand, he fostered a revolution in Sierra Leone by helping establish the Revolutionary United Front, or RUF, under the leadership of fellow Gaddafi graduate Fode Sanko. To learn more about Fode Sanko and the RUF, please listen to Blood Diamonds, Sierra Leone, Parts 1 and 2. Throughout the 1990s, the RUF channeled millions of dollars worth of diamonds through Charles Taylor's laundering network, obtaining the funds it needed for its own war and providing Taylor with a percentage. To put this in perspective, between 1994 and 1998, over 31 million carats, worth about $1.96 billion, and enough to pay Liberia's national debt, were recorded at Belgian customs as Liberian. The same country, which had never even reached half a million carats in the 1950s. Between 1990 and 1997, the Liberian government sitting in Monrovia had no way of providing official export covers for diamonds. This meant that all the quote-unquote Liberian diamonds reaching world markets were exported by Charles Taylor and his cronies. 
Finally, in 1997, Ikomog grew tired of trying to keep Taylor out of Monrovia. An election was held and he won in a, in a landslide amid reports of massive voter fraud. Taylor and his government tried to take greater official responsibility for the inexplicably massive amounts of diamonds going to Belgium. He tried this in 2000 by creating a fake diamond rush at Painesville, a town that is close to the capital, Monrovia. He wanted to use these as an explanation for the massive amounts of diamonds leaving the country, but unfortunately, no one really believed him. The craziness continued in that same year, when Liberia informed a UN expert panel that official diamond experts had totaled only 8,000 carats in 1998, valued at just under a million dollars. This was against $269 million worth of Liberian diamonds imported that same year into Belgium. Here was the issue. Because most diamond traders knew that Liberian diamonds were not really Liberian, they also declared other ill-gotten diamonds as Liberian. After all, it's not like the Liberian government could do anything about it. As the president of a UN member nation, especially one that wanted to participate in the international monetary and trading system, Liberia had to respect certain conventions and obligations. The first was visits from the IMF to which Liberia owed at least $600 million. For some weird reason, the IMF did not notice the diamond smuggling and laundering industry, but they did notice some irregularities in the logging industry. Some of those irregularities included the fact that receipts from logging companies did not match those from the Ministry of Finance. What this means is that somebody, or a lot of somebodies, was embezzling money from the logging industry. I'll give you one guess as to who it was. Global Witness reported in 2001 that at least 7 out of the 25 logging companies operating in Liberia had direct links with other companies and that those companies had direct links with arms suppliers and traffickers. Some of those companies outfitted Taylor's military directly. Global Witness also reported that an estimated $160 million worth of timber had been exported in 2000, while only $6.7 million in revenue had been recorded. My guess is that the balance was split between Taylor and the logging companies. The UN Security Council expert panel reporting on Sierra Leone in December of 2000 recommended an embargo on Liberian timber exports, arguing that off-budget proceeds from timber as well as diamonds, was helping finance Charles Taylor's military support for the RUF. They were right, of course, but France and China objected. They felt that an embargo on timber would hurt ordinary Liberians. Following this objection, another expert panel was charged with a more detailed investigation into the issue. But two weeks before it could report, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan submitted his report on the same issue. The report was prepared by the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Assistance, or OCHA. This report said that timber sanctions would cost up to 10,000 well-paying jobs. They would deprive the government of important tax revenue. They would shut down secondary industries and they would negatively impact 
the construction of Liberian infrastructure. I have a problem with this report for a couple of reasons. The first is that the jobs that were going to be lost were nowhere near 10,000. In fact, they were closer to 500. The second, all that money was always headed towards Charles Taylor's pocket, not the government. Finally, all this logging wasn't being done sustainably. Logging companies were cutting down everything from endangered hardwood trees that were centuries old to cutting for the sake of cutting. You know, like when a logging company simply chops down trees to make way so they can then chop the trees that they wanted in the first place. As you might have noticed, the report didn't even bother mentioning the fact that most of the logging taking place was unsustainable. As for earlier, when China and France objected to the placement of embargoes on Liberian timber, did you think they did it for the sake of quote-unquote ordinary Liberians? Of course not. In 2000, 50% of official Liberian timber exports went to China, while 26% went to France. Shocking, right? A Chinese official later said, quote, Of course, we import timber from Liberia, but that is not our concern. We just want to find a proper balance between humanitarian issues and the possible link between natural resources and arms. End quote. As we all know, China is the bastion for quote-unquote humanitarian rights. That's why they haven't imprisoned a group of people simply for being Muslim. But before you judge them, remember that no one is any better. Most of the West that is busy complaining about the detention of Uyghurs doesn't care about them. In their eyes, it's all about power. First it was Huawei, then it was Uyghurs. Believe me, if it wasn't for those two reasons, then it would be others, such as Hong Kong, Taiwan and the South China Sea, or even communism. Oh, wait a minute, all those are issues, right? A French official at the UN also said, quote, We are completely open to imposing sanctions on timber and rubber if the links with arms is proved. Well, two weeks later, the proof was provided by the expert panel that had been asked to conduct an investigation after China and France objected to sanctions on timber. The expert panel recommended that the IMF commission a detailed report on revenue from timber concessions in order to determine more clearly the discrepancy between official and unofficial revenue from timber exports. The expert panel also recommended that the UN ban round log exports starting in July 2002, insisting that the local operators diversify into wood processing before that date so as not to lose income after the ban was in effect. In usual UN fashion, however, no action was taken. Had they taken some, they would have spared a lot of Liberians from heartbreak because Taylor would later admit that he had accepted millions of dollars into a personal bank account at the time. He went on to insist that the money wasn't for personal gain. Quote, this covert account was used to buy arms. End quote. This brings us to an end. Thank you so much for listening. Please join me next week as we continue to talk about Liberia's blood diamonds and the UN Security Council's complete ineptitude and shocking corruption. If you liked this episode, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review.
If you want to interact, you can do so on Instagram at Society of Strife Podcast and Twitter at Society of Strife. You can help me make this show better by donating on patreon.com slash societyofstrife and buymeacoffee.com slash societyofstrife. Please remember that there is a difference between listening and supporting. When you listen, you gain knowledge and benefit from the show. But when you support, we both benefit. Before I sign off, I wrote the name of the Ivorian president that I mentioned. It is in the episode's description. Please send me a message on Instagram or Twitter with ideas on how to pronounce it. Happy Earth Day to all of you. Goodbye and stay safe.